Welcome back to another episode of Made in Common. This episode features Kevin Stark, who began his career as an actor and then made a career change to computer science and software development. Not something you hear every day. We split it into two parts, and this is part one of two, covering the entirety of his acting journey from high school onwards all the way to post-college work. I believe this episode will be useful for prospective actors, actresses, and also just those interested in hearing the jagged path of an aspiring actor. I hope you enjoy it. Now on to the episode. So you were an actor or an aspiring actor before I met you at uh, UBC Computer Science, or should I say BCS, which we'll get into much later. Starting chronologically, maybe a simple question would be, did you always want to be an actor? Uh, oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I think I think from like high school on, I did want to be an actor. Um, before then, I wanted to be things like taxi driver, police officer, Zamboni driver, those kinds of things. You know, the normal Canadian child things. <laughs> um, we can still drive a Zamboni together. I could, I could st- every time I'm on like waiting in the boards, I'm like, that guy's just doing my dream. He's just <laughs> living. He's living my dream. Um, but yeah, like once I got into high school and, and I kind of started doing it, um, I, you know, I took a, a the drama class electives and had a lot of fun. And it seemed because um, I was kind of like a nervous kid. I mean, I'm still a nervous person, but I, there was something that was a little bit it should have made me super nervous to be on stage in high school in front of a bunch of people that were judging me harshly. Um, But for some reason, I just like wasn't really bothered about it. And so, you know, there was part of that that was kind of like a sign to me that was like, I feel like I should do this more uh, or at least explore what it would be like without thinking about any of the logistics of what does this mean as a career? What does it mean as a lifestyle? What, like, how hard is it? Like, where am I physically? I'm not, I'm not in a major center for, I'm somewhat in a major center for, for acting in Vancouver, but not, not in the hubs. Like you're still, if you're in Vancouver, you're still probably trying to get somewhere else, right? You're probably still trying to get to a city like New York, or you're trying to get to a city like Los Angeles. Um, even though neither of those things really ap- appealed to me. But in high school, at 17, it seemed like an awesome idea. Um, but you had so fun doing just, this all, right? Like, you were just having a blast. You weren't thinking about all these things originally. No, when... but, like, who is, right, really? <laughs> like, I mean, I, I would say I was a pretty introspective child, but I I still wasn't thinking about a lot of the long-term um consequences i think anybody at 17 kind of feels like hey i could definitely i could do that and then you know they they name you most likely to go to hollywood in your yearbook and you're you're off you're ready to go it's, it's pretty much a done deal so is that what happened i will yeah I, i'm pretty sure Holy I, shit. To, I don't know if i have i don't have my yearbook. <laughs> yeah I'd we be, demand I'd proof be, on air yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> don't want anyone to fact check me here but yeah it just it definitely felt and of course i had a couple of close friends that were also doing that after after high school and they we, we ended up going to capilano college which now is capilano university 
and did that for a couple of years and then went to UBC to do it a little bit more and made a short career out of it, but it was a lot of fun. It's definitely not, there's something intoxicating about it as a career because it's not your average career. You're, your coworkers start to just end up to be more like friends and family than they end up being colleagues. It's a, it's a completely different relationship. Whereas like you go to work now and if someone leaves the company, it's like, yeah, Hey, uh, see you later, maybe, but you never really talk to that person. Like it's very rare that you form those relationships, but I'm, I feel like for years, every kind of project that I worked on as an actor, you just like always connect with that person. And I always loop back with that person. And just you just find you have, you have a stronger, more personal bond with yes, those what, people. What type, of, what type of acting did you start off with? Did you did you want to go into like TV, movies, theater? I guess it's pretty broad, right? I wasn't picky. If you were gonna pay me, I would probably, <laughs> I would probably do most things. Don't cut that into it. <laughs> but uh, like mostly theater was what I had focused on. It was it's where I trained mostly, especially in university, a lot of the contacts that you made and a lot of the connections that you made were in that community. Definitely there were some film and TV connections, but there were a lot fewer. I also graduated in 2009, which was a year after the financial crisis. And so as far as TV and film in Vancouver, there was a huge contraction. And so the few jobs and the few shows and films that were happening around that time in Canadian terms are really just competing. They were trying to, uh, Vancouver and Toronto and other Canadian cities were, were trying to match each other on tax cuts and credits for film and, and TV to go there. And so I really didn't see a lot of even auditions right after I got out. So I found myself just pushing a lot more for theater because that was still, that was still pretty consistent, still happening. Whereas it was more feast and famine in the film and TV industry. And it's a hard industry to, to break into because I think for every one person that's trying to get into theater in Vancouver, there's probably 10 or 15 that are trying to get into TV and film. I met lots of people that I was at acting auditions or film auditions or commercial auditions with, and none of them had ever seen a play, rather, or let alone been in one. So it's, you know, the, there's not a one-to-one -one ratio between the individuals that would study and, and do theater uh, performances and, and theater acting that would then do film and TV. So, um, but I did do a little bit. Um, I did some short films and. If you don't mind, uh, Kevin, we'll put, we'll, let's put a stamp on this one first. Cause I think you're talking, you said 2009, I'm assuming that was after university, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I graduated. Oh, so I'm gonna, we're going to, okay. We're going to put a stamp on this one and we're going to return to this, but going back to, let's say just finishing high school then. Okay. And you're destined to be an actor. You were named top of the class, et cetera. And you went to cap college, right? And so, I was going places. Yeah. You, okay. So honestly, when you're young and bright eyed, you probably felt that way, right? Am I wrong to assume that? No, absolutely. Um, and then, so you got to Cap College, and was there a moment during then that you had a little bit of a rude awakening, like the competition has stepped up, or you were struggling, or were you still excelling at that point and feeling like you were destined, or anything like that? Funny enough, the rude awakening actually came before that, because my closest friend, Mark, actually 
we had both applied for that program, the theater program at the time, and he got in and I didn't. Oh, shit. So I enrolled at Cap College just in general studies because I wasn't accepted to get into the theater program. The caveat was that you could, if you wanted to, anyone that was a student of the or it's a university, but the college at the time, you could audition for shows. Like it, it wasn't sequestered off just for theater students. So anyone could audition. One of my high school teachers at the time said, "Why don't you just go to the school, audition for the shows, and beat one of the kids that was <laughs> going to be in the show, but or in the program, and just get their part from them, and then." try and get into the program that way because obviously if you're getting a part and that other guy isn't then you should be in the program can you explain a little bit because i'm pretty ignorant of this like Mm. you could so i'm assuming based on what you said there's a limited program i don't know how many people there are and then they get first dibs at auditions maybe or some kind of favoritism and then you can come in and beat them at that or how does that work definitely there's definitely there's favoritism i don't Look, I don't want to put the Cap College Theater program no, no. on blast. Favoritism might have been the wrong word here. I was, I was just trying to say it's more priority because they got into the program, right? It's the, yeah, and, and there's familiarity too. Right? And familiarity, I, yeah. Like it's, it was, I had no idea who any of these professors were. If you're a student in one of the programs, you're taking regular classes with each of these professors. So you might have elective courses, but it might be one, and then all the rest of your courses are focused around like your core your core program, which is with one of those professors. And so they would do, and the program would do four shows a year, two big stage, more budget shows that were on a large, in a large theater, and then they had two what's called black box shows, which are usually smaller, more intimate theater. Is this Sometimes, all at Cap College, or is this yeah. okay? Yeah, it was all at Cap College, and some, and a lot of times, they're the, those smaller shows are maybe a little bit hard hitting. They might not bring in the big crowd, so you could you have some leeway to do some more interesting stuff. And so, the first show that I auditioned for was like the first one of the year, which was like a it was like a Roman. I can't even remember which show it was. Gladiator. Yeah, exactly. I was was Joaquin Phoenix. No, it was like a it was like a Commedia dell'arte. Like it was mask work, so like you're it was like a comedy. It was called the Brothers Menechmus, and it's Shakespeare did a version of this, and so it's it was a very very stylized, very fun and ridiculous comedy. Um, But yeah, like you like all the theater students would obviously audition for the show. They know the professors because they're in class with them every day. So there's they know the performers, so they know their capabilities. So there's an obvious whether you're not you should or or would like it. You know, the the floor is tipped in their direction, right? Yeah, make it akin to being on a sports team and you didn't make the cut, but you show up to like practices or something like something, I, don't I don't know <laughs> something like yeah, that I, I yeah i showed up with my stick and puck to roger <laughs> whose manco is not making the cut so we <laughs> oh, got boy. A, i'll take his spot <laughs> yeah it, it, essentially you could put your name on the board and show up and audition so take and us through a little bit of that if you don't mind just so you're pretty much the underdog here. So we're making a movie right now. So you were the underdog sort of in the general program. You're trying to make the cut here. And so how did that feel? Like, did you feel 
did you have a chip in your shoulder? Did you feel like, oh shit, I if I don't make this, then this is my last chance? Or like, how did that feel going into all these additions against all the students who were in the program? Yeah, I don't know if I don't think I had a chip on my shoulder. I was, I was pretty. Everyone that I met there was really nice, and I didn't. I'm very competitive, but I wasn't upset about it. I just, I had a, maybe a young and stupid confidence that I was going to do well regardless. And so honestly, I hadn't really even thought about what the possibility would be if I didn't get into it. But I wasn't really thinking like any 17 slash 18 year old. I wasn't really thinking two feet past my own face. So I just really... Gosh, I missed that. Uh, I was just kind of thinking about <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thinking about what what I was doing at that moment, which was to just try and get, you know, get any part at all. Um, I guess from another perspective, then, since you mentioned that everyone was pretty nice and kind and just doing their best, did you approach it to just be like, I want to just get to know as many people as possible and just join the club that way, and then whatever happens, or yeah, by that time, I I had one of my closest friends in the program already. And so there was a few people that I, I knew just tangentially just from that association. And so I felt like there was a small group that was already just rooting for me to get um, in there. Um, but there was still a lot of, still a lot of walls up, right? I didn't know any of the professors. There was lots of people in that program that I, lots of students in that program that I didn't know at all for, it definitely did feel like the weird kid a little bit that was just hanging out. Like I never thought I'd be the kid that wanted to hang out with the theater kids that didn't <laughs> want him there. What do you mean? I'm not included. Yeah. So it, it, yeah, like it, there was definitely a feeling like I was an outsider and getting, getting that opportunity to do that was just, I felt like it brought me into the fold more. Yeah. Um, was to be it, able to actually do I'm that. Curious, was there a lot of other people outside of the theater program that would also audition? No. No. So like you'd be like, I guess, very much in the minority there. Eh? Was it really much like the the black sheep in the family type of thing? Yeah. It's like when you showed up, it's like, who is this person? Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's pretty cool, man. That's I honestly think that's commendable, right? Because you're not really that's not really the we keep on generalizing 17 and 18 year olds. So let's just go on that note here because generally in that age group you're given direction right you don't really like you say you can't see two feet past yourself generally but you were able to just through your friends and different connections you were like i'm gonna i'm going for it anyways i don't care and then i guess you had a little guidance on when you didn't make it that you should try this approach but how long were you willing to give it were you just willing to give it as long as possible and and then when did you get that big break in that sense? That's a good question. I I wasn't, so to answer your first question, I wasn't really, I really hadn't thought that maybe it was stupid confidence, maybe it was ignorance, but I hadn't really thought about the possibility that I wouldn't have find a way to weasel my way into the program at some point. Really, any course that I could take that was part of the program, I basically looked at the courses that all of the, the program students would take, and I basically enrolled myself in every single one that had a spot and that I was eligible to take. There was a few of them that very much like any other program, they'd say, hey, this is blocked off for these 
yeah. these students because they're part of this program, so they need to take this class as part of their their set curriculum. But so then that was a lot of the acting classes and other specific classes. But anything else, whether it was like history of theater, whether it was like any of the tech courses, any of that stuff, all of that I just took. And I thought, okay, I'll just go and go as hard as I can on all of those other courses, audition for the shows, try to get in. And then in the next year, if I can parlay myself in there somewhere, audition again, and then say, hey, I've taken most of the courses. Just put me in the second year and then do it that way. Which is what I ended up doing, but I didn't have to audition. They just knew me well enough by the end of the first year that they just stuck me in the class. It's pretty cool. Um, yeah, it was not bad. And so I did skip some of the early acting courses because I didn't need to, or I tried to catch up on some of them. But just like any college or university, they don't offer those courses all the time. Um, so you have to just try to make it work. So that was really the plan that I had at the beginning. It wasn't. A much of a plan but it was a plan uh, which so. <laughs> it worked in at the end of the day it worked so yeah. i'm like yeah it was a perfect plan <laughs> yeah and sorry i don't remember drew what the sorry yeah it was, was like the, two the completely was. that was a hard that was a hard fastball at you because <laughs> they were completely unrelated so i think it was basically like me asking when did you finally get that break and you were accepted into either okay, the yeah, program okay. or yeah, yeah in into the hearts and minds of yeah uh yeah, so it, by the end of that first year, I'm trying to think if I did a second show that year or not. I can't remember. It was a long time ago now. Um, it's all good. But uh, I made up enough course material, and I had done a performance, and I basically schmoozed my way into the minds and, and hearts of most of the professors and the my classmates such that they they found an extra spot they stuck me in for the second year which Sweet. then i was in it and and finishing my i guess my diploma at the time it was just a two-year program because they weren't a university right so i wasn't going to get a degree out of it but interesting there's a couple paths we can go down here actually i do have a burning question before we continue down the chronological path because i can't help but wonder was that kind of your first encounter with failure because you didn't make the program or how crushing was that when you didn't make it and that was your rude awakening? I've been acquainted with failure most of my life. <laughs> what? When I was a child, every soccer player on my team got a trophy. Top goal scorer, best defenseman, top goal tender. I got perfect attendance. That's <laughs> no one. Everyone gets a tr yeah. Everyone can't be top the player. <laughs> the coaches looked at my stats and they said he attended every game. <laughs> he showed. He put the shoes on. He put the socks on. He ate all of the oranges at halftime. <laughs> the oranges. I remember the oranges. That's, yeah, that's what Kevin did. No, it, but you're. Yeah, you raise a good question, which is it definitely was probably the hardest the hardest hit early on. I think when you go from any small pool in anything, regardless of what it is, if it's sports, if it's acting, doesn't matter. Once you're in a small pool, you can get accustomed to be 
the top of that pool, right? The biggest fish in that pond. And it doesn't really matter how slowly you increase the size of the pond. At some point, you're you're going to run into a circumstance where either you're not the biggest fish in that pond or you're not even the size that rates in the pond and you're not even you're not even worthy of getting into the pond and so for for myself at that particular time in my life in that age it was definitely it was definitely the first time not just to feel like i was at the back of the pack because if i had gotten in and then showed up on the first day and there's all these fantastic performers and i just i feel like i suck and I'm not getting any parts, or I'm getting one line rolls or two line rolls. That would have been that would have been something. But I wasn't yeah. even I wasn't even in the room. I wasn't even the, the door was closed in my face. So that was it was definitely a reawakening in a lot of ways. Yeah, thanks for sharing that because it is a common theme in a lot of our episodes where you are the biggest fish in the pond in high school, and then post high school, it's. <laughs> Like you say, you're not anymore. And I think it's a really hard thing. That first big failure is a really hard thing to face, especially at a young age. And looking back, it's almost like getting chicken pox. When you're younger and you get chicken pox, it's all good. And then the longer it takes to get chicken pox, the shittier it gets. And so (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why that's my example. That's the thing I'm thinking of. Like when you're like... Let's say your first encounter with a big failure is 30. That hits so much harder, I think, than being the, I don't even know, even if the soccer thing actually was seared in your memory, that could be your first encounter with failure. But it's, it's, speaking for myself, I faced a bunch of mini ones, but definitely the post-high school one was a rude awakening. Holy cow. It's interesting that you faced it and then you overcame it in that two-year span, is there anything else you can recall from that period of time that you can like go back and, and tell yourself, like, hey, don't beat yourself up? Or, or were you still kind of like, I can do this at that point? Yeah, I, I, there was definitely still adversity to, to come in that period. I never, I would study for weeks for auditions after that. And in, in my second year, there was four shows to, to potentially get to get roles in. And I worked my ass off at every single one of them. And I always ended up getting bit parts. And I remember one specific time for a show, there was a checkoff show. It's called The Seagull, if anyone out there knows it. And the lead character's name is Constantine. And he's a young kid and he's a writer and he's very sensitive. And his mother is also this famous actress. And there's just, there's a a very, I don't know if there's a, it's been a long time, time since I've studied this show. So there's like a, <laughs> there's someone out there that's listening that's just like, that's mm, actually, <laughs> actually, <yeah>. actually, <laughs> um, but you know, I, you know, I remember there being just like, there's this deep void for him between his relationship with his mother. It's not very, it's not very strong because of course she's 
a famous actress, so she's very self-involved. But also, he feels overshadowed. You know, and his own opportunities and his own creativity is very much in the background, regardless of what he does. Not just because of her fame, but and her inattention to him, but also just because he just can't really strike out on his own. Somewhat tragic character, but very, very meaty. Just a great part. If you're a young actor, like you want to play Constantine, he's a great okay. part. And I remember studying for weeks for that show, for that audition. And then I remember the morning I went out there, a friend of mine in the same class was like, hey, do you have the audition size? I haven't read them and I don't have, my printer's broken. And so I actually brought him over a copy and then he looked at them for half a minute and then went into the audition and then the guy just gave him the part. Oh, wow. Jeez. <laughs> right off of it. And I remember being so choked at the end of that audition, not, not because I didn't work hard enough to get the part, but because it didn't really even matter. Yeah. Right? And so the rude awakening in that part was that there was just, there were powers and entities at play in that situation that had nothing to do with my skill and ability. And if I had to talk broadly about my timeline in that career, that's essentially what it came down to, which is like 95% of it. 95% of my success within that career has nothing to do with my work ethic or my ability or my talent. It has to do with a whole bunch of other factors that are completely external to me. Um, is that a known thing? in the acting field is oh yeah that's because i have no idea how the school programs work do grades even matter then in that sense or how do you get an edge in that field if think past you're thinking like i did in bcs which is yeah dumb. that's i've <laughs> only done science degrees like that don't think about how to roll back a database, Drew. They're not going to ask that on the exam. But I want to know. Who cares? They're not going to ask it in the exam. You're only going to have to face that in the real world, and that doesn't matter right now. No, it's you're, yeah, like what you're in the school scenario. They're going to give me grades that are fine, regardless, right? At the end of the day, like the how it was different at at this particular college was that those performances, those shows, were completely external. Right. That same expectations, but they did not factor into your grade because it's entirely possible that you wouldn't have gotten into the show if there wasn't enough roles and somebody else got in. So there's lots of people that during certain shows, they weren't in them. So they were just taking their regular day to day classes. And so all of the rehearsals are in evenings or in weekends and performances are at night. So they don't even factor into the classwork. So all that stuff is just take it completely out of, of the classroom structure and the curriculum. It's all, that's all essentially extra, which is like a little hint at your life in that career is that everything is extra and unpaid. <laughs> but so then, is the school really just, sorry, is the school no, really just serving as like a social network per se? Like a bunch of students enroll, they have some agreements where they give opportunities for people to apply, then it's really up to you to get the role and do your own branding at that point. Yeah, to to a certain degree. Again, they were now it that was this was literally twenty years ago. So sure, sure. Okay. Um, good. Yeah, that can has likely changed greatly. When I studied acting at UBC, it was very different. Whereas you're there is some there are some guarantees that you as a performer within one of these programs is going to get roles in the university's season of theater. 
And so you're, and the, depending on the director, because the directors can be pulled in from elsewhere, but the professors at the university are still going to have a say to a certain degree on, at least at the time, they're going to have a say on where you were placed based on what they wanted to see out of you professionally. They might guide you towards something that you're not very good at, those kinds of things, whether it's trying to create breadth. Capilano at the time, that was much less of a concern. And in my honest opinion, they were not as concerned with making sure that every single student got a fair shake at mm. equal opportunities to, to really dig into work outside of just class. So there was lots of students that I, that I studied with who didn't get roles at all. One of the most successful actors in my class barely got a role. And now, like, he's on TV and film all the time. Wow, um, so I'm, like, super confused. Maybe that's just a relic of the past, but I'm just a little confused in terms of... I just... I'm trying to speak on behalf of an aspiring actor as a viewer. Or maybe that's someone that's thinking about it, right? That's like... Mm -hmm. Okay, so in this strategy... And I'm sorry for everyone listening or watching that I keep using computer science as an analogy because if we haven't hinted enough, we're all from the same computer science program and we're going to be talking about that later. But basically, in software, we were at least lots of us were tunnel vision into grades and co-ops and stuff like that. But really, there's something called GitHub where you can do hobby projects and broadcast it and publicize it. And if you had a kick-ass GitHub profile, an employer would value that very highly. And it's like volunteer work or extracurriculars when you're applying for another program like healthcare or something, like a, a medicine or pharmacy or something. That's another analogy. So for acting, if grades were so detached from the auditions, but then you're telling me this successful actor also didn't really get parts then if it is an aspiring actor that's, I don't want any of the bullshit. I just want to be giving myself the best chance at being a successful actor. What should they focus on at school then? Should, be, should they even focus on grades at all? So the, the, it's hard. It's hard for us because, well, it's hard for you. I've lived both worlds. <laughs> it's The grades are really, how do I put this? So I find, like, without getting into the philosophical discussion about, like, how universities measure... Maybe later. ...and how we have done that growing up as children, you can really think, and I think, to me, a good acting program, for you young actors out there, a good acting program should really be focused on looking at each individual performer with a growth mindset. And I personally, I, if I were creating an acting program today, I would want to try to tailor to the performer as much as I could and what their goals were. But ideally, what you're trying to do in, in an acting program is not get good grades because no one, once you leave school, no one cares about your grades. You don't go to, you don't go to a film audition and the casting <laughs> director says, oh, you got to be in your third year <laughs> acting. No, what they care about is, do you look the part? Do you sound the part? Can you act? That's it. That's all they really care about. 
So would you, would you say the additions matter in that sense then? Because if people, word of mouth are spread, if you kicked ass at all these plays that you got parts in. Yeah, definitely that has an effect and that's part of what you want to do. It's also about building craft, right? Like there's, acting still has theory and fundamentals and theoreticals. There's still a way that you want to study a script, right? There's still a way that you want to analyze a character. There's still a way to rehearse. There's still a way to to study interacting with other characters or other actors. There's, if you look into film and TV, there's a way to, there's managing where you are on set. There's managing what the shot is. Like right now, depending on how this is cut, I'm in a medium shot, right? The facial expressions that I can make if I'm in a medium shot can be a little bit more expressive because the camera is further away, right? But if someone comes to you and says, hey, this is a close-up, then I'm not going to be as animated because that's going to look really freaking weird, right? That's a simple contrived example, but it's something that in the film world you have to think about, right? Which you don't have to think about in theater. In theater, everyone's just in the audience, right? Everyone's right. the same distance. I thought about right? that, yeah. Cool. But in film, every single shot could be slightly mm. different, right? The audience is at a different distance from you in every single shot. And in some cases, the shot isn't yours. So, you know, what you have to do is different. So th there's, there is lots of theory. There's lots of craft to it. And in university or colleges or whatever specialized program that you go into for that kind of stuff, the thing that you really need to focus on is learning those parts of the craft and understanding what really works for you and adding those tools to your tool belt. I wouldn't say that you have to learn and understand everything or not learn and understand everything, but take on everything and say, that's going to be the, the way that I work. It's, I think it can be much more personalized than that. Each performer prefers to work in different ways. So expose yourself to all the different stuff. And if it's uncomfortable and you don't like it, then you try it and you just say, okay, I'm going to put that over there and I'm not going to do that anymore um, because this thing over here, that works better for me, right? Those are the things that you really want to focus on. As a performer, those are the things that I wanted to focus on in school. Yes, I also wanted to get out and performing in shows and trying to invite lots of people that I could. And if I could get in some colleges and universities, the professors and the staff and the faculty, they have professional connections. And so they're going to bring those professional connections that they have. And they're going to say, Hey, come see all my students. Right. And definitely the first few jobs that I got outside of university, I got because of people that I knew at UBC, right. Whether it was staff members or people that I'd worked with or people that came back who are alumni and saw the shows and were like, Hey, you're awesome. Let's work together on something. There's definitely those connections that you make. And that is the critical piece. Once you leave is making those connections and finding those opportunities for yourself and knowing kind of where can you fit in and what you can do and what you have to offer. But at the same time, it's important I think for your heart as a performer, because as opposed to, I think, working in tech, we can distance our personal selves from our work a lot more. It can be a lot more <laughs> binary. Whereas as a performer, they're not talking just about your ability or your talent. They're talking about what you look like. You're too tall. 
you're too blonde. You're not blonde enough. Oh, the, your voice is annoying, that kind of thing. Those things might not be said directly to you. Sometimes they are. But that's exactly the kind of stuff that's going to be talked about performers once they leave the audition room, especially when it comes to film and TV and commercial auditions. So for your own self, you have to divorce yourself, your personal self and your pride and your talent and all those things from that process because so often all of those things that you prize and that you work so hard on about yourself, they're not actually going to be the deciding factor in whether or not you get work. It just isn't going to be the thing. And so if you take every one of those failures and every one of those hits personally and blame them on your talent or your perceived lack of talent, you can really do some harm to your own psyche and to your longevity in that career because you're just going to think that you can't cut it in that business because of your talent. Is that a is that an intuitive thing when you're going through this type of training or I imagine that's a really tough lesson to learn. A little bit of a subtle message here is that you almost have to know yourself and you have to also know how people perceive you. Yeah. Whereas and I think a lot of the what do you call it social wisdom they always tell you, you don't have to care what people think, just be you, right? But what you're telling me is that's a big factor intuitively in acting is it does matter what people think of you because you are trying to appeal to that. Is that make sense yeah, at all? Yeah, for sure. Like you, you have to understand that you are the commodity, like you are, you are selling yourself. And so I wouldn't personally tell anyone to be inauthentic or to not really punch up who they are. Because I think that most of the time, if not all the time, that's actually going to be a deciding factor in whether or not they do get a role or not, right? You just have to realize that what I think is the difficult thing to understand is that here's the pool of parts in the world of roles that you could play. And when you're young and when you're in acting school, I played an old man, I played a doctor, I played a serial killer. I played a kid and a soldier in the same show. I did all kinds of different roles. But when you get out into, say, especially into film and TV, you're going to whatever. If, some, if you go down the street and you look at someone and you think about who they are to you in that half a second, in most cases, that's what they're the average actor who's not a big star is going to be typecast as, right? Yeah. So, oh, for me in college, it was like, okay, tall, lanky, nerdy, best friend, right? That was what it's going to be, especially when I just, especially when I was wearing glasses, right? If I went into an audition and I was wearing glasses, I would only wear glasses when it was for a kind of a bookish part because that immediately added a thousand nerd points to, it's like this guy is going to be in front of a laptop for the entire film, right? If I were... 30 pounds bigger in pure muscle and I took the glasses off whole new set of parts right I don't have to change my voice I don't have to change my acting I don't have to do anything different but it's just that five seconds of what someone sees in you immediately right off the bat is how they're just gonna it's where they're gonna start from right and where they're gonna start from if you want something else out of 
their perception. That just means you have to do so much more work, right? To try and get there. And quite often, especially when you're starting out in this career, you don't have that kind of time. You're going to get five to 10 minutes in an audition room to read a page, maybe a page and a half in front of a reader, in front of a camera, and that's it. So if you can't change someone's perception of you in a minute and a half, like that's tough. I remember one one film that I got a part for, I remember sitting down and I thought I was just being me, just being like a regular me, like just an average guy, not too nerdy, not too sporty, just in between, just average dude. And I got the part, and when I came back, one of the girls that was in the casting room was like, oh, when they saw you, they were like, yeah, he's the perfect crazy conspiracy nerd. (laughs) And I was like, oh, really? And she's yeah, you just, you exuded the part as soon as you started reading. And I was like, like, I... So, like, my perception of who I was at that particular time, like, I didn't dress in a specific way to try and push myself in that direction. I didn't do anything. I'm not even sure I was wearing glasses for the audition. Like, I was probably like, no, no glasses, because that just, it nerds me down a bit. And so, to hear that feedback was crazy, because I would have never thought of myself as default Evan wearing his own clothes going to an audition <laughs> as like the average person seeing me on the street being like, hey, it's crazy conspiracy nerd. <laughs> hey, like Area 51 really happens. Um, I'm curious, do they put like when they put out a role, do they actually list characteristics that they're looking for a person or does that cross the line of discrimination at that point? I'm just very ignorant when it comes to these things. No, that's a good question. Yeah. They They definitely do. I'm sure before uh, my time, they did a lot more of the discrimination things where it's so-and-so is a white blonde bombshell, which maybe they can justify that in certain cases if it's if it's like an iconic part. If you're doing Betty from Betty and Veronica, maybe you can get away with that. Or Barbie, right? You can probably get away with that in some cases. Now, more often than not, those types of things aren't written down. And if they want a specific flavor of person as far as look, it's that I'm sure that's just like a verbal thing. So you're definitely going to get characteristics. You might get references, like you might get pop culture references. So quite often, and especially with bad television, in my experience, it cribs from good television, but just not as well done. So they'll give you a reference character right they'll be like oh this person's jesse from breaking bad that's that's so then when you go and see that show you'll be like hey it's a discount jesse pinkman right like that's that's what you'll that's what you'll see but they it's yeah they'll absolutely do shorthands like it's you know just just like you would see in other media whether it's video games oh this game's like starcraft right like that's the thing they it's a quick way to get you an idea of what they're looking for. Your task really at that time is to quietly, in my opinion, is to quietly divert those expectations and kind of show them something, show them something that they don't expect to see. It's really like finding like an uphill battle. Because I imagine too, it must be frustrating as an actor auditioning where maybe they have either written down or not written down, but the director has this 
quote unquote ideal image in their head, but they just can't say it out because it'll be politically incorrect or whatnot. Especially these days, yeah. But I imagine for the actors, if you don't know what you're getting into and you're doing like an addition, I just imagine like the directors would just be like, oh, it doesn't look the part. I'm not even going to watch it, even though you could have shown them something from the left field that, you know what, maybe we should change this character because this person showed me something that I just never thought would be so wonderful. Yeah, like you're not likely to get those opportunities, especially especially in first auditions. Sure. Like to get past the first auditions, which are usually just like huge cattle calls, but depending, you know, sure. what, on what okay. it is. Like it's going to be, you go to a casting director's office, there's a, a limited number in Vancouver. Uh, mm-hmm. From what I remember, I don't know what it's like today. And so you'll see the same people that you probably saw last time, but you're mm-hmm. reading for a different part. You'll do your thing and you'll say, oh, it's good to see you. Okay, see you later. Bye. <laughs> and that's it. And you might be lucky enough to then get called back for that part again. And then you might get more script. You might get a more targeted description. You might be asked to do something specific or different. Um, but you know that comes that really comes later right in mm-hmm. that first round you're just not you're just not getting much because they're not in really they're not investing a lot of time or effort sure. into yeah. into that end so the investment has to be on your end to hopefully try to move the needle just enough to get yourself in the door again to hopefully move it even further along Really? Actually, if you don't mind, I have it's this is another basic acting audition question, but it's like, can you just give a really high level overview of the steps required for you to get a part in in a role like that? Because you said first audition, I actually don't know how many there are. Uh, it depends. If you're honestly, if you're doing like a two or three line part for a TV show, it could just be the one audition. Okay, they might. Honestly, they're not, they probably don't care that much. Again, I haven't done this kind of stuff in decades. I know people you can talk to, but (laughs) it's really the bigger role that you're going to have. Essentially, hey, if you're going to go interview at Amazon, I hope you packed a lunch, right? It's that kind of thing, right? Where it's, it's six interviews, an endurance test, and a Navy SEAL training course, right? That's the... If you want to get to there, you have to do the work to get to there. And so the larger parts, starring roles, like you would be doing multiple auditions and the more and more people are going to be involved at every single step. Okay. So in the initial stages, they're just, the casting directors are just like, and a lot of times they're just there to put you on tape, depending on who you are and how they know you. They might give you some direction and ask you to do something different and put something else on tape. But quite often, it's just they're going through people and that's being forwarded to somebody on the production side that that has the next level of say. The further along you go, yeah, then you might actually meet a director or a producer or somebody that has a lot more say in the process of casting. Not necessarily, not the process of casting. The casting directors do have the same casting, but but have a, a really final say on who's going to who's going to lead out their core cast, right? In that sense, the casting directors are there to bring them options. 
But in most cases, unless the the team is looking for something fresh, uh, unless you're doing Star Wars, right? So Star Wars, if you look at any of the trilogies, they didn't hire a lot of known actors, right? You're not seeing a ton of super famous actors starring out in Star Wars films. It's a trade of the films. They did that with the original trilogy. They did that with the prequels. And they did that with the sequels as well. And so in those cases, you're going to have a lot of actors that are going to be doing a ton of auditions to try and get their way to the end because a lot of them are not very well known. And so they want to see them at every step in the way. And then they're going to be matching them with different people. Because that's the other thing is once you get actors at the end, once you get Daisy Ridley and you've got, you've got Oscar Isaacs, you're okay. Do X and Y characters look good together? Is Daisy Ridley four feet taller than Mark Hamill? Because that'll be weird. Or four feet taller than Adam Driver? Because that would also be weird. Mm-hmm. So then they're going to be looking for people that are the same height, maybe, or un- unless they're just going to put somebody else on an Apple box for every two shot scene. Tom Hardy as Bane. <laughs> right? <laughs> Every shot is just below him. Yeah. <laughs> Every single shot is below him. Yeah, there's lots of things like that where it's there's a whole bunch of weird stuff that happens near the end because you're pairing people up and you're testing people against other actors and maybe you've decided on one, so now you've got to go through the ringer to find the other one, right? That would um, be pretty tough too because you could have, quote-unquote, your all-star cast. You have your main character. Oh no, Daisy Ridley does not mash well with Isaac. So we're just going to get rid of him now. Even though he killed the part, it's just there's no chemistry. So we'll just find someone else random. Yeah. So what what do you do in that instance? Who, who if you can't get them together and you can't, you don't feel like they're working. Yeah. Those, they don't have as much screen time as, I forget what his name, that played Boyega. John Boyega, is that right? Yeah. Like, he would have been the guy that you'd probably pair with her more. Sure. Uh, but definitely. But then but then he has, especially in the first film, he's got a, a close relationship with Oscar Isaac's character and Adam Driver and Daisy Ridley have a close relationship that, that persists throughout the series, throughout the trilogy. Um, spoilers. Um, so, Holy shit, we're going to do a deep dive into this. We're, do the, yeah, we're, we're, we're not going to co-cast the Canucks game, so I guess we're going to do a deep dive into uh, that sequel trilogy. No, it, that's actually, a, I think that was actually a very good example of the, just like a an interesting process for a lot of people who, because I don't think, unless we're not really an acting podcast, like, Maybe we'll speak to some people that you know, but it's uh, very enlightening because I have a ton of burning questions. I don't know about you, Matthew. I just, I'm trying to think in the interest of time here because we could actually spend the rest of the night talking about <laughs> acting if we want. So I'm trying to think of a way to make this concise. We also, partially my fault, I took this on a segue during your Capilano to UBC transition there. This this hosting is just. <laughs> is there anything during the UBC era for your acting, let's say, that you wanted to touch on, or was there anything there that shook you from the Cap College arc 
<laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it's definitely a, a different experience. And if I were, again, if I were to give advice to young actors or young professionals or people that are going through uh, college experiences or univers university experiences, if you have a bad experience or even an experience that just doesn't feel like you you benefited from it, don't be afraid to have a talk with yourself and stop and say, this isn't working for me or I'm not getting what I was. I don't feel like I was getting what I was promised out of this, especially if you feel again, be honest with yourself and say, Hey, am I putting in what I'm like as much as I can here? And that, cause that's really how I felt after cap was that I put in so much and I got out so little where I would see colleagues and friends of mine put in relatively little and get out so much. And to me, the nicest way to say it is I was not meshing with how that particular program was organized. And so for me, UBC was a very different story. I had a lot more success there as, as a performer, and I got a lot more opportunities to, to work. And I felt like the amount of work that I put in was actually really valued. Again, it wasn't for everybody. I, our class started at 12, I think, in that program. It was three years, and I think we ended at seven. So oh, I think wow. we lost, I think we lost like a student every semester. <laughs> so, and, and this is where it goes back to grades, because we had the first semester, we had one of our colleagues actually booted from the program. Oh, shit. Because we had check-ins at the end of each semester. And so at the end of the semester, they would say, here's what we're happy about. Here's what we're concerned about. And here are the adjustments that you need to make for the next semester. And it wasn't necessarily like a grade point average that needed to be increased to keep your to keep your spot in the program. It's your behaviors, it's activities, it's commitments to certain type of work that you need to like exhibit to the satisfaction of the faculty that you have to meet those expectations. And so is that, is that like a clear distinction between Cap College and UBC? Like I imagine, based on our earlier conversation, there wasn't as rigorous as a chicken in, in Cap College, but UBC seems much more like to what we're used to from... Yeah, it was more organized at that time. Now, in all fairness to Capilano, my wife also studied there, and her experiences was much, much different. And so she had check-ins every semester, and people were definitely put on blast if they were not meeting expectations so it could be as simple and obvious as things like hey you didn't come to class like at bcs if you didn't show up to class like nobody cared yeah really it's okay well, you missed the lecture go look at the slides and i guess do the assignments and then maybe you missed the clicker questions so you got docked <laughs> for attendance that way i don't know well, a lot of professors didn't care, right? But in a conservatory type program like that, like you need to show up to every single class, right? Because it's a community. And so missing attendance for any reason whatsoever was a discussion, right? So that's that's one thing where I had friends who at the time were like, yeah, I'm not going to go to class. And so they were almost removed from their program because they didn't show up. You get warnings, right? Just like you're in a, hopefully in a setting at work with your manager. If you're, if you're let go at your work, my current boss says that should never be a surprise, right? Like it should never be, 
it should never be shocking to anyone that their performance isn't up to par because that should be a constant conversation about how you're performing at work. So I guess your grades and acting was like part of it was attendance, performance and the show or whatnot, your work ethic. So I, I guess it's not as cut and dry as, I don't know, solving some algorithm or just getting some input output. I imagine. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Like you're... So how, how did emissions work then? Because I'm curious because going, going from Capilano to UBC, then I imagine all that UBC really sees is your transcript grades or do are they also, do they also have reels of you doing acting, for example, and that's also into consideration? No, they audition you live. Oh, okay. I, so they do, that at UBC, they did two auditions. I had like, we had a cattle call audition, which was like with a group of 10 or 12 other people. Um, not the biggest group I ever auditioned for university with. I think I did an audition for, I think it was York University, and there was like 40 students in God. a hall at the same time. Hunger every, Games. Yeah, exactly. I volunteer as tribute. Um, and each person would stand up and do their prepared monologue in front of everybody else. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then they would get grilled by the faculty person for two minutes about their performance, again, in front of everybody else. Um, was the monologue, Eddie, you could just come up with your best skit? Or was there, like, <laughs> some type of thing? <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know what? Choice, choice is important. Definitely okay. choice is important because they'll ask you what you're doing and what it's from. Uh, okay. And so there was lots of people that would do exactly what you're saying, but it was like, hey, this guy, Paul, wrote a book of monologues. They're not from plays or films or anything. They're just a book of monologues that Paul, this guy, wrote. And so it's you'll have some kid being like, oh, I'm doing this monologue from big books of monologues. <laughs> um, oh, no. And so it's poorly written. You can't uh, really, well, the person doesn't know it. So you can't really build off character because honestly, oh, if you're going to do one of those things, you should see or read the read the piece that you're working on, understand who you are, where you are at that particular point. I imagine they, you got to do some recon on the professors too, because I imagine if you know what material they work in and you're picking parts that characters are already familiar with, it probably resonates easier if you really kill the part because they have some preconceived benchmark in their head already. Versus if, I don't know, I did Arcturus Mink's monologue from StarCraft. Like, nobody... It'd be such a great monologue, but nobody would have no idea what the hell I was talking about. <laughs> but Chris Metzen would just be like, you killed this. You killed this. Um, yeah, wow. but you know what? There's downsides to that, though, too, right? Because if you have someone that if you experience someone that typified that part, let's say, if I was going to do a monologue in front of Sean Penn, I probably wouldn't choose one of the roles that he played, right? <laughs> like, yeah. Because he might have a very specific, very specific opinion about how that role or how that part is supposed to be played. That, that, that would be confident, especially yeah. if you went a completely different way, because either you're going to just appall him or you're going to be super impressive to him. Yeah. That's It's going to be one of the two. It's less about, I would say it's less about catering to who they are and 
making sure that whatever you do, you you know what you're doing. You've done your research, you've made choices, and you can defend it. Just like a thesis, yeah. like you could defend your choices in a lot of those cases. So you can do the Minsk monologue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's also... Again, Chris Metzen, he's going to love it, right? <laughs> um, and yes, I know Chris Metzen's more Warcraft, but, um, <laughs> but it's also about showing people that you understand your industry, right? Um, if I were to walk into work tomorrow, remotely, figuratively walk in, and say, hey guys, everything should be PHP. Right, like there, <laughs> that shows <laughs> no comments. <laughs> that shows a slight ignorance to my ability to do my job. If I'm thinking that the thing that we should really be focusing on and the technology that we should be choosing is PHP, like COBOL, yeah, yeah, you know what? Let's get out of Ruby on Rails and AWS and let's just run our own servers, our own hardware. Cobalt. It's like you, you you want to be able to show that you're you studied the art that you're working in. You know what a good piece of theater and a good piece of writing is. And so you don't want to bring something wild Arcturus Minx. Great. <laughs> there is a hierarchy of value in the theatrical world where StarCraft may not rate. That's, that's, that's very, all very debatable. Video games it's... could be a larger media than movies <laughs> in the future. Oh, here we go. Now we're really open to can of worms. It's over. Yeah. <laughs> that is a totally reasonable argument in today. There's a whole category of the Game Awards now that's, yeah. that is oh, like yeah. film and TV made from Kratos. Made from games. Yeah. yeah. Holy cow. We get um, that. That's such an interesting topic to me, actually. That one there. I think. Where were we? We were somewhere at UBC <laughs> with your story here. I, I graduated. I, 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 <laughs> I did work. <laughs> okay. How much more can we drill into here for your UBC acting career? I think one of my burning questions already is that what you did going to Capilano College at the time and then to UBC, was that a atypical route? Or is that pretty typical that someone would go to? I definitely met a few people that did something like Douglas College or CAP and then went to UBC. There were a few people that went straight to UBC. From high school. Uh, from high school. But again, UBC, the theater program is three years, right? A typical undergraduate degree is four years. Right? Yeah. If I wanted to go and do that out of high school, I wouldn't have enrolled to go straight into the theater program my first year out of high school, I would have gone into kind of like a basic like arts degree bit mix for my first year, which I had friends of mine that went to UBC did in their first year. And then at the end of that first year, you're, you're going to try to enroll and audition for that program. The downside to that, of course, is that you might be in competition so you might go to a university that you want to be in the acting program with for a year not in that program and then you might be in competition with a bunch of people that are coming from colleges or other programs that don't have a like an undergraduate degree attached to them 
that now want to be in that program and they want to go straight into it, like myself and a lot of other people. And so the challenge there is that if you go to a university, enroll in that university and spend a year studying in that university, and then you don't get into the kind of the professional training program that you want to be in, where do you go? If that's still the career path that you want to go down, there's only 12 people accepted in the program every year. That's not a lot of people. Yeah. Um, they get hundreds of applicants and people auditioning every year. And so you have a less than 10% chance to get in. Here's a little all, bit of a all side. Things, all things being equal. But, a side yeah. question to me is, I don't even want to use this word successful, but do a lot of actors that have quote unquote made it, do they even skip education as a whole and they just do something else? Like they just keep right out of high school or early college, they just roll into applying for auditions or is the value of a degree actually valued in this industry? No, the, I don't know. I don't think that the value of a degree is necessarily an edge, I guess okay. I would say in the industry. No one's checking your credentials at the door. Let's okay. let's just say all that matters at the end of the day, again, is what you do in that 60, 90 seconds on camera and how you look and sound doing it. Um, so it's just purely for training then. These degrees are just for training and networking. Yeah, it's training, it's networking. Again, it really depends on what you want to to do in the future, right? Like... I think that if you want to be on stage, personally, you, I think you need to be a trained actor, honestly. And I don't want to put any pure film and television actors on blast, but <laughs> if, you're, if you've done no training and you, maybe you did auditions when you were in high school or younger and your parents got you into that stuff and then you left high school and you've been getting roles and so you just keep getting parts and all that kind of stuff and, and you go through it and you're starting to get success in film and tv without any training just out of high school that's great that's phenomenal but if you decide that in your late 20s hey i want to go and i want to do a stage show somewhere to me my honest feeling is that that takes a certain amount of discipline a certain level of discipline and training that you just you don't get when you're focused on things like film and television because it's just the nature of the medium you're not seeing a lot of tv shows you're not seeing a lot of films that have scenes that are longer than 60 seconds or 90 seconds you can take a terrible actor and and a great editor and you can build an amazing performance uh, out of a really bad actor because all you need to do is get them to be believable for three to five seconds and then cut away. And even if they're a phenomenal performer, and there's lots of phenomenal performers out there that, that grew up in film and television and didn't do stage, that transitioned to stage, that, that's, I don't think that's common. I think what you typically find is you have a lot of phenomenal performers that have done stage and then they typically move into film, mostly because it's more lucrative, right? It's less work for more money. And you can do a lot more work simultaneously, right? Because shooting schedules, depending on what you're doing, are a lot shorter. And then, boom, it's, hey, I can shoot this in a month or two months or three months, and then I'm off to another thing, and I'm getting paid a lot more money. And now suddenly I have four or five films coming out this year, right? Whereas... 
in theater, it's okay, you're going to be doing this run on Broadway or in London for six months. That's going to be most of your time. And if you are going to do any film or television, it has to be geolocated wherever you're doing your show because you can't really, you can't really leave. It's like people like Alan Rickman, people like Mark Rylance, like people that you see now that had emerged into film and television and gained prominence there. A lot of them started in, in theater and really honed their craft that way. So, <laughs> you're again circling back. You said you had a lot of success at EBC. So mm-hmm. let's go back to that mode there and take us through maybe your biggest learnings or achievements or what exactly happened there to transpire you from going for graduation and then now you got your degree and you're going to give it a real shot, right? So what happened between all those events and make us take us through that part of your journey? Yeah, I think the biggest difference for me at UBC over where I started was there was just a lot more exposure. They did a lot more they did a lot more work to get students exposed to acting and working professionals that were like in the Vancouver scene. So most every director, I think, except for maybe one show a year, was always somebody that they brought from outside. And so you'd often have somebody who worked at, just did a show at the Arts Club, which is Vancouver's biggest theater company. And now they're going to direct a bunch of students at UBC, right? And there's also opportunities where they would do what are called co-pros, where the cast would be half students that they would audition from the school and then a lot of the other parts and older parts they would get professionals from the community and so you would spend two or three months doing working on a show that would be put up at the theater at ubc with professionals that you would have maybe just seen in a pro show like a month before you're getting to work with those people you're getting to to meet those people i remember at least one or two actors that I worked with would then end up doing interviews in local papers and stuff like that and talk about myself and say, oh, this guy is graduating from UBC next year. Watch out for him in the theater community. So like those kinds of things are very exciting because you're just getting that exposure early on. And not long after I graduated, I, I got auditions from that were basically just references from professors and, and faculty members that I'd worked with and other pros that I'd seen. If there was a director that I'd worked with at UBC that was doing a show at one of the big companies, I would either reach out to them or somebody at the company and be like, hey, I want to throw my hat in the ring. And oftentimes you get a shot because they just they knew you and they'd worked with you. Regardless of whether or not they thought they were going to put you in there somewhere, you know, it's the, the devil you know rather than the devil you don't quite often. Right out of the gate, and in my class, and in the classes, like the three years before me, I at right out of the gate, I was getting the most work. I think I was the first person out of the class ahead of me in my class to get a contract with one of the big theater companies. So I felt pretty confident that I was just... And to me, to be honest, if I could kind of cycle however many few large companies there were 
in the city and just say, hey, if I could just get three or four jobs a year that go a few months, that's pretty much you're just rolling at that point. And you've just got work pretty much all year. Was that the case, actually? Or did I miss that? Were you kind of on that schedule for a while? No, no, <laughs> I don't know. I don't no. know. <laughs> no, like I, I, the first gig and they always, the actors will always joke that the first gig that you're going to get is a touring show. And so the first gig that I got was a touring show. And what those are typically is either it's depending on what it is. It's usually like young adult theater or kids theater. And so for me, it was like a, a play that had a, a company that had a deal with different school districts throughout Western Canada that were doing kind of school tours to basically do shows about certain subject matter that was important to Canadians and Canadian history. And so this was about like the suffrage suffragette movement, <clears throat> women's suffrage. And so I toured that for a while throughout Saskatchewan, approaching the winter, which was not fun. Temperature-wise, it was fun while we were doing it. And then I worked with one of the big companies not long after that. But then after that kind of dried up, things okay. got really slow. So, and you, and you mentioned at the beginning, this was right after the great financial crisis, right? So that must have played a big part into just available work in general, right? Yeah. If you're an actor in Vancouver, unless you're really well established, you're probably, if you want, even if you want to be, you're probably not making your money solely from theater. If you want to do stage, which at the time I did just want to do stage because it's just way more fun to me, there's probably a, a dozen or a couple dozen people that are just doing that stuff all year round in Vancouver. You can do it if you want to travel, if you want to spend a few months in Calgary because you got a show there or you know there's a couple of professional companies in, in up north one in Kamloops um, if you want to go even further east into Toronto and try to cut your teeth in that scene you can do it Victoria's got theaters as well on, on Vancouver Island so if you don't mind shifting yourself around a little bit and maybe living out of a suitcase for a little while you can definitely make theater work but if you want to stay in vancouver there's probably like three or four places that you can go and make a professional living just doing those and so there's a small handful of places that you're going to be able or a small handful of people i should say that i would have seen during my time that were able to do that most of them not my age <laughs> they've been doing this for decades and their next part was just someone saying hey i have a role for you hey i have a role for you hey i have a part for you um did you know it was going to be this way at the tail end of your education? Or was that another rude awakening? No, getting close to finishing school, I was definitely obviously aware that that the economic factors were not in my favor at the time. And that was going to be challenging as far as film and television. Because really, ideally, what I wanted to be able to do was imagine my theater habit as an illicit drug that I needed to keep myself happy. And then the theater and film was what I would do to pay for having that drug habit. And so you're, to me, I wasn't thinking about, one, I wasn't thinking about doing TV and film as if I was going to become some huge film star, nor was I thinking that I was going to get into that as my primary method of making a living. I was thinking more of trying to get into that in order to get a few roles and 
if it's a big commercial or if it's a big show, then you might get a good payout, right? And then that at least takes the pressure off you so that you might be able to choose your next job when you actually get to a point where you can choose work a little bit more freely, right? So I can say yes to doing a theater show, even though it's going to pay me half or a third of what I might be getting to go and do a soulless film job, depending on what it is. <laughs> Not to say that they are, and that's a gross generalization, but for what it, it's about what you want to do, what, what you appreciate doing. And for me, it's like the thing that I appreciate doing wasn't the thing that was going to pay me that much. Yeah. How hard was that to reconcile with? Were you willing to go push yourself to the limits to go as far as you could doing no. what you loved or no. So you hinted that you weren't dependent on it for your primary economic driver, but did that already clicked in for you at the tail end of your degree or during the work right after that? So there's two things that clicked in for me. One, it's like really grasping. And this was actually something that I started to really understand more and more of as I worked with pros that had been in the industry for a long time and understanding what really the different sacrifices that they make on a daily basis on a yearly basis just to to make their careers work and these are incredibly well trained they're successful they're well-known performers in in vancouver and in western canada and they're still making tons of sacrifices when it comes to working. People that have been in the industry for 30 or 40 years, they're still, they were still doing the thing that I would be doing, which is when I'm working on a job, I'm not enjoying working on the job. I'm thinking about the fact in six weeks I'm unemployed. And so I'm fretting and I'm worrying and I'm panicking about where am I going to get another gig from is there something else coming i don't have any auditions in the pipe or i just had two and i got neither of them right like those are the things that are just continually they're slowly eating away at you yeah and that starts to what i didn't know and what i learned over time was your tolerance for that which everyone's tolerance is different yeah right, for those kinds of things I have really discovered that I'm the person, I, no, I'm not the person, I'm definitely the person that wants to know exactly where his next paycheck is coming from. Um, I go to bed way better now <laughs> than I ever did, knowing that I wake up tomorrow and I go to work at the same place and I have a job and I can feed myself and heat my home and all that kind of stuff. But those are Those are the things that mean a lot to me and if the sacrifice for having that peace of mind is i'm not necessarily doing the thing eight hours a day that brings me the absolute most joy in the world then that's okay i do that to be able to do all the other things in my life which that's a hard thing to reconcile especially when you're young especially yeah. when you've worked so hard to live your dream and really feel like you've built momentum and then hitting that wall of just really feeling not so much like, yes, this is hard, and yes, it's difficult right now, and I'm not feeling successful, and I'm not sure that I'm going to do it, but it 
to me, it's even if I do do it, even if I am making it, even if I am as successful as some of the people that I aspire to be, they are still, some of them are still thinking about the same things that I'm thinking about now, which is where is my next paycheck coming from? Where is my next paycheck coming from? And so even being the most successful that I could possibly imagine to be kind of in the industry that I'm in, if I'm still stressed about the fact that I'm not sure where that next paycheck is coming from, like I, that was definitely the thing for me that I said, I can't, I can't, I can't deal with that. Like I can't. Was that a gradual that. struggle or did it hit all at once at one point where you're like, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. Like, oh no, I can't do this. Or like, yeah, you know, it was, it was definitely gradual over, over time. Um, I think early on I'd probably realized it, but I'd be pushing yeah. back a bit. Yeah. Um, and I did, I did a stint at the theater company called the arts club, had a really wonderful time doing that. Definitely one of the highlights of my career doing that met a lot of wonderful people that ended. And I did just like a handful of just weird things in between. And then the next year, they said, hey, we're going to bring it back and we're going to tour it this time. So they do like professional tours around the around Vancouver. Which is funny because now that I'm out in Maple Ridge, <laughs> they're like, hey, this arts club show is coming to your local theater. <laughs> just, oh, my gosh. Yeah. I was the person wow. coming out here being like, oh, Maple Ridge. Oh, <laughs> it sounds like you, you gave it what was the duration before. And I guess this is going to segue into how you got into bcs right? but how long did you actually like roughly stay in it until it was yes that next paycheck was it's just i just don't want to deal with it what, what was that what was that fair shake for you it was about three years three um, years okay it's so pretty good it's it's i'll call it respectable <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but, you know, like it and the sad thing is not a lot of stuff happened in that time, which mm -hmm. I think probably was part of it. And I'd probably ask a lot of actors and they'd say, well, you've, I had to wait five or 10 years before I got to a place where I wasn't taking random side jobs yeah, in order to make all that stuff work. But were you um, taking like side jobs during that time, too? Or was this um, just you still could get by with what you currently had? Cards on the table. Yeah. I was living at home at the time. And I I was able to be a little bit I had the luxury of being just like a little bit pickier. I was still taking quote unquote garbage jobs. It's but they, acting, right? But they related. Yeah, they were related to mm -hmm. acting. Like I I did stunt for like history channel or discovery show things. Which wasn't really stunt. It was just like, you are a meat bag in costume that we give you. <laughs> so th there was definitely things like that. And they, again, they paid okay. And it was a group of people that I was able to build connections with and find, again, further along the way, which is just the common refrain. I didn't, I didn't really resort to finding a Joe job. Because also I had, I was given the luxury to be able to try to just get more, not, uh, I don't want to say the word exposure, uh, but just get more experience in certain places and parts. And so I ended up doing a couple, like VFS would, would put out roll calls for short films for their students. And so 
they would get some people from their own acting programs at PFS. But again, like those programs are short and they don't have a ton of requirements to get into them. So some of the performers are not phenomenal. Uh, and getting roles in short films at VFS was not particularly hard. And they were fun. And it gave you gave me some really good exposure into working on those kinds of productions because they did work pretty hard at getting everyone like well-versed in all of those productions. So I did a lot of that stuff too as well to try and build up the resume and kind of kind of the stats as it were. Yeah. While trying to get trying to get parts. But yeah, it, it was a struggle and a grind that just slowly wears um, wears away at you until you just I guess now I'm curious since it's probably like the hard segue into it is <laughs> the hard, how, the, hard how, how the heck did you pick computer science? Yeah. <laughs> Funny enough, I said that I've never met anyone that did it, but actually the person that got me into it was somebody that did it. That's relatable. Yeah, a, a guy that I I went to UBC for acting with, he originally was in, I think, either a math degree or a computer science degree, and then made a hard right turn into acting. Oh, okay. And then he faced some health struggles. And so he'd been in some professional shows and had to drop out due to health issues. And so while he was struggling with those, he was trying to find ways to motivate himself and then also potentially to get work. And so he started ended up doing work around software programming. So he he had done it previously and he was going to go in for a degree. And so I don't know how he managed it, but he somehow convinced the faculty at UBC to accept him into the Masters of Software Systems program. And so he just went and got his master's in software systems. And then after he left with his master's, he went off and he did some consulting, like some, I think there's a company in Vancouver called, I think it's called Habanero. And they would do like web design and like custom client builds and things like that. Spicy? Spicy, very spicy. <laughs> I think they were called Habanero. Again, this has been this is a long time. And then he started working for EA and he, he was doing front end stuff. And rebuilding the origin store, as it were, way back when they relaunched that. And so he was the one that actually gave me my first Java textbook and encouraged me to go off and try that out. And I enjoyed it. Um, Did you know anything about it before that moment? No, never touched it in my life. Did You, you were a gamer, though, right? Like you played oh, games and stuff. I'm a gamer. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you had some hands-on with technology here. Yeah, I've used a computer before, Drew. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just mean it wasn't completely like out of left field. Like we're not imagining. No, it's no. I no. I'm not like I'm not like your grandmother who just. <laughs> <laughs> My I mean, you called me through the computer. <laughs> <laughs> but you are a gamer and we're we're all in the same era but like gaming back then wasn't just plug and play like you had to be nerdy to get your games running optimally so you were still i'm assuming you were tech savvy to at least some extent yeah like i yes it, it's I, I would say if you were playing if you're playing pc games yes you've definitely messed with your registry you've definitely screwed with a config file to get those unlimited frames <laughs> yeah and i've definitely built i built a pc or two but, okay. yeah. but like none of those things 
like my friend that builds PCs all day and he works as like a wireless tech up north for Telus. He's like, he has no idea how to write programs. Like he, that's just they are they can be very distinct. They're distinct, but you're conditioned to sit in front of a computer for eight hours a day and not get tired. (laughs) Absolutely. Which is, I guess, getting to your point, yes, that is the number one condition that you need to be able to satisfy as a software developer. 